and then recreating old worldwide church of God is not near enough. We need to look at the circumstances of what has happened and understand what God is doing now and what he has been doing. And I've covered this from several different angles, but I want to zero in a little bit today. And this may take two sermons once I really got into it. I gave a sermon along these lines in Cape Town two weeks ago and uh, and covered a little of it. And then I got thinking about it and, and it's developed into more. And I, I think I have more here, more scriptures that I can possibly get through today. So this may turn into two parts. But let's begin in Zechariah 1. Understanding that all these prophecies of the Old Testament have to do with the end time. They constantly and consistently talk about in the later latter days you will consider or understand it. And so many, many of them refer to the day of the Lord and the destruction and upon uh, the downfall of Israel and so on. And as all of you, perhaps, who have heard the Minor Prophet series realize that as a focus we've been coming at this from the standpoint that most of these scriptures back here apply first to the church and then secondarily to physical Israel. On the other hand, if you want to set that aside in a sense and say, well, maybe it all just applies to physical Israel, aren't we part of physical Israel? So in any case, it refers to us. All the instruction back here, whether it be directly to the church and secondarily to physical Israel, or at least in time element first to the church, the spiritual Jew and then the physical Jew, um, where was I going with that sentence? I lost it in the middle of it. Uh, it applies to us. I guess that's where I was headed. Uh, because we generally, in the church, are part of physical Israel. Whether we were brought into it from a different race, most of the church is in North America, Western Europe, uh, South Africa, Australia, the areas where God has caused Israel to settle. So, we better take it personally, regardless of the overall meaning of any particular subject or any particular passage, because if it applies to physical Israel, it applies to us. If it applies to spiritual Israel, it applies in spades to us, because we are a part of that small flock of spiritual Israel that God is now working with. But when we get back to Haggai and Zechariah, I think it becomes clear here uh, once we understand the definitions of the people involved, and I'm not going back over that again, uh, about the two witnesses and proving that they're the, the, the Joshua and Zerubbabel of Haggai and Zechariah. Uh, once we understand that these apply to the church, not to physical Israel, and these are specific ones here in Haggai and Zechariah referring to the church itself, once we understand that, it opens a great understanding of the rest of the prophecies because they, too, are referring in great part, to the spiritual Jew first. So I want to begin this in Zechariah 1. This is one that we've gone over uh, a multitude of times, and yet I want to maybe approach it from a little bit different uh, angle today, as you'll see as we get into the sermon. And here in Zechariah 1, um, he's speaking of the church, and he says in verse 15, well, verse 14, he says at the bottom part, I am jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great jealousy, and we've understood from Hebrews 12, 22, and 23, that Israel, Judah, Jerusalem, Zion are code words for the church in the Old Testament. Paul made that very clear in that context. So he said, I am, very, I am jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great jealousy, 
speaking of the church, and I am very sore displeased with the heathen that are at ease, for I was but a little displeased, and they helped forward the affliction. And what I want to focus on here is not necessarily the Dukachas and that pagan heathen doctrine they brought in, though that comes into the story, but the part that says, I was a little displeased. God was not entirely pleased with Worldwide Church of God or with us who were members of it. Uh, He was a little displeased, somewhat annoyed, you might say, not completely happy by any means. Now, as we think back to the changes that have occurred in the church in the last 15 to 20 years, we think if only perhaps we could get back to what we were before those changes happened. But here, I think he's speaking of the time before Tekashis came in and began to influence, and even before that, he was a little displeased. He was not entirely happy with what was going on. And we could go back to Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel 34 and many, many other scriptures, Malachi, which shows he was not at all happy with the ministry and the way it was abusing and misusing the sheep, fleecing the flock, uh, muddying the waters that they were trying to drink, and so on and so forth. Uh, He was very angry, for that matter, against the ministry. And with the overall church as a whole, apparently he was somewhat or a little displeased. So we were not pleasing God, even at our best in Worldwide, before it began to come apart. That we need to grasp and understand. And part of the reason I say this is because so many, many people, it seems, have gone from Worldwide, left the heathenism which sorely displeased God, and have tried to recreate Worldwide, essentially, in its focus, in its philosophy, in its way of keeping the Sabbath, in its way of living life. Uh, God was not entirely happy with us under those circumstances. And to recreate that and to sit back and to feel comfortable again is a very, very dangerous attitude to take. And I do not intend to let me or you sink back into that. We simply have to come to a higher standard of thinking and living than we had at our best in worldwide. I do not want God to be a little or somewhat displeased with me or with you. I want him to be happy with us. I want him to come to the place that he's able to say, you are my sons and daughters in whom I am well pleased. I don't know whether we could quite reach that or not. He was well pleased with Jesus Christ. I think I would even settle for, you're my son in whom I am pleased. Uh, Well pleased, Uh, I don't know whether any of us can truly live up to or not in the same way that Christ did by any means. But if we could just please him in every way, wouldn't that be wonderful? I would love for Christ to come back and say, my father and I are really pleased with you. Um, Me as an individual, you as individuals, and us as a group, wouldn't it be nice if he could come back and we could hear him say that? So, let's go from there to Isaiah 5, and I've covered this uh, before in the Minor Prophet series and at various times apart from that. But we need to understand what God is doing and why, and realize that 
We simply didn't live up to what God wanted of us. And now we have to retool, redo, uh, recreate, and we have to do in a way, do so in a way that is better than what we were before. So let's see that in Isaiah 5. Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard and a very fruitful hill. Uh, God built a church, and he built it on a fruitful hill, and he was happy with what he had done, basically, just as he was when he created Eden, was happy with what he had done, but then some things happened that weren't according to what he desired or wished or would have been pleased with. So he starts out singing about this vineyard and talks about all he did for it. He fenced it. He gathered out the stones thereof. Just left the good soil. Bad doctrine, perhaps. Maybe it would be stones. Uh, maybe it's referring to individuals that were gathered out. Uh, there could be different analogies you could apply to this. And planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it. Now, he gave us the things that a vine would need. Good rootstock to begin with, I think through Herbert Armstrong, who was, I believe, good rootstock. He did not completely do everything God wanted done, but then who has ever? Uh, and built a tower in the midst of it. They had a tower with a watchman in it to keep the foxes out that came in and ate the tender grapes, as some of the songs uh, points out. So we had a watchman that God gave us to keep an eye on things and to keep danger away, and also made a wine press therein, so adjacent to it or in it, uh, there was a place where you could uh, crush the grapes and get out the good juice to make fine wine. I mean, that's the whole idea of grapes. I mean, we can eat grapes, and grapes are wonderful, and they're good food, but for the most part, people don't grow grapes to just eat. For the most part, the vast majority of it, they do, they make them or grow them to make wine. And it needs to be fine wine, as Christ made it his first miracle on this earth, made the best wine available. So his object is to make good wine of us, that which he would enjoy, because God is cheered by wine. Uh, there's a place in Deuteronomy that talks about how uh, wine that cheers both God and man. So, God drinks wine. Christ isn't right now, and we'll get to that a little later on. But, uh, it does cheer God's heart as well. So, fine wine is something that God is pleased with. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. How sad that you go to all that trouble to pick the fence and get good root crop and and water it, and, and get the stones out, and set a watch over it, and do everything you could possibly do for that vineyard, basically, and then have it turn out with sour grapes, wild grapes, uh, not good grapes, not good winemaking grapes. And that apparently is what happened with the vineyard that God planted here in this end time, because he was not entirely pleased with what happened. And now, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, code words again for the church, judge, I pray you, between me and my vineyard. Now, whose fault is this that the church turned out like it did? What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? He gave us a good leader. He gave us 
essentially good doctrines. We didn't understand everything under Herbert Armstrong. And we still should be growing in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Master, not sitting static. But he gave us essentially those things that would, would nurture us and give us nutrients and cause us to grow and produce that which he wanted produced. Here again, I hearken back to the Garden of Eden, and he'd given everything he could possibly give to Adam and Eve, and immediately they turned and did something else when influenced from a different direction. And so often we have been influenced by the society around us and have followed the Babylonian ways of materiality and uh, the Egyptian ways of sin and whatever else you want to say. He says, verse 5, And now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the heads thereof, and it shall be eaten up, and break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. And I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned nor digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns. So the ministry is basically useless today as far as getting the church the kind of nutrients and help it needs. Uh, the hedge has been broken down. False leaders have come in, and the church has simply been eaten up. Jeremiah 12, verse 10. Let me tie that in here. Isaiah, Jeremiah 12. Verse 10. Many pastors have destroyed my vineyard. They have trodden down my portion underfoot. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. They have made it desolate, and being desolate, it mourns to me. The whole land is made desolate because no man lays it to heart. The spoilers have come upon all high places through the wilderness, for the sword of the Lord shall devour from the one end of the land even to the other end of the land. No flesh shall have peace. They have sown wheat and shall reap thorns. They have put themselves to pain but shall not profit. And they shall be ashamed of your revenues because of the fierce anger of the Eternal. So many pastors have trodden it down, misused it, abused it, and the vineyard has been trampled. And he says, I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it, verse 6. So spiritual famine has come on us. Uh, read Amos 4 and Amos 8 and see that that is indeed true. And not just a famine of bread, but a famine of the word of God. Showing that here again, uh, this is referring to the church and that we are in a famine of the word. Verse 7, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry. Now examine those words a little bit. The Eternal intended us, as his church, to be a pleasant plant, a pleasing plant, if you will, in which he could be well pleased. And he looked in the church for judgment, but behold, oppression. Is that not what we have gone through? We have been oppressed by those that were our leaders. And I, too, have to include myself in that, not just throw rocks at someone else. For righteousness, but behold, a cry. We see people weeping and wailing over our present condition, but do we find righteousness? See, that's what God is looking for in his vineyard, is righteousness. But instead, he finds a cry. A cry, a plea, please deliver us, please help us, please bless us. Please bless the work we're trying to do, whatever it might be, and whatever church you're talking about. And those things essentially are not happening. Then he says, Woe to them that join house to house, that lay field to field, that there be no place, that they may be placed alone in the midst of the earth. 
And I think, again, this applies, first of all, to the church. We built spiritual house next to spiritual house next to spiritual house, and now there are several hundred that have come out of worldwide, and there's no place for peace, basically. Uh, arguing and fighting among ourselves and themselves, um, not allowing peace. And it has a physical ramification, too. There's been a tremendous building boom of houses in America in the last ten years. Uh, but those physical houses will be torn down, just like these spiritual houses will be torn down. Let's read it. In my ears, says the Lord of hosts, of a truth, many houses shall be desolate, even great and fair, without inhabitant. So it'll apply first to the church. These spiritual houses will be torn down and not be inhabited anymore. And we haven't seen the end of this. Because still in all, so many are just trying to recreate worldwide. Not going above and beyond that. Only doing that which they thought was required of them. And brethren, I want to think better of us than that. I want to be able to feel that we are going to do far better than that. That we will raise the standard that we allowed ourselves to live in the past that we will come to have a higher standard than what we held ourselves to. I look back on my life, and so often I did not hold myself to anywhere near a high standard that reflects the character of this book, of God's Word. My life did not parallel God's Word in many, many ways. And still today, I fight it from day to day to try to live up to the standard of God's Word. We simply were not doing it well enough, and God has done what we're reading about right here to the church, and it isn't over yet. Verse 10, then he begins to talk about famine. Ten acres of vineyard shall yield one bath, and the seed of an homer shall yield an ephah. So the principle being here that, yes, we might be in a vineyard, we might be in one of those daughters of Zion, or one of those vineyards that spun off from Worldwide Church of God, but... They're simply not producing the grapes, the kind of grapes that God wants to make his wine with. And as a result, uh, he has not watered. He has not fertilized, digged, and done. He has simply turned his face away, as several scriptures indicate. And we have a spiritual famine that we're living in. This physical nation is going to have a physical famine as well. And that I don't think too far off. Verse 11, Woe to them that rise up early in the morning, that may follow strong drink, that continue until night, till wine inflame them, and the harp and the vial, the tabret, the pipe, the wine, are in their feasts, but they regard not the work of the Eternal, neither consider the operation of His hands. Many, many people go to the Feast of Tabernacles, or the other feasts of God through the year, and they're there to be entertained by this world and the things in this world. They don't consider the operation of God's hands. The main focus of the feast are not God. You know, you can sit and listen to a sermon and sort of rock from side to side and uh, wanting it to end so you can get out of there and go be entertained in some form or fashion. That is all too frequently the attitude in the church today. And we must have a higher standard than that. And we came to have that standard in worldwide even before the Tkachas came in, before the heathen entered. 
It had gotten to the place that we like to go to the big cities for peace and have the fine entertainments, I guess, that the world has to offer. Therefore, my people are gone into captivity because they have no knowledge, and their honorable men are famished and their multitude dried up with thirst. So the leadership is not giving the kind of nourishment spiritually that is needed, and people are losing the knowledge of what needs to be done. And they're just sort of drifting along like we were in Worldwide, drifting, drifting, drifting until God blew it apart. Therefore, my people are gone into captivity. Verse 14, Therefore, hell has enlarged herself and opened her mouth with met without measure, and their glory and their multitude and their pomp, and he that rejoices shall descend into it. So, going along, thinking we're doing fine, and all at the same time, we are headed toward the grave, and not even realizing it in many cases. I want you and I to realize it. I want us to understand what God desires of us and what we need to do about it and not rest on our laurels or rest on our oars, as Zephaniah 1 says, but to move forward and to set a higher standard. Verse 15, And the mean man shall be brought down, and the mighty man shall be humbled. The mean man, meaning the average guy, will be brought down, and the mighty man will be humbled as well, and the eyes of the lofty shall be humbled. So the spiritual pride that we had, even in worldwide, we're the only ones, we're the true church of God, we're God's only people, and basically implied with that is we can do no wrong, we're okay, we're fine, don't worry about us, which really is a Laodicean attitude. And that's what we became. And now we are being humbled. But the Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment, and God that is holy shall be sanctified in righteousness. Out of this, God is going to show His glory. And as good as we might have thought we were in worldwide, God, who is bigger than all of us put together, was able to humble us and to bring us down. And His righteousness and sanctification are going to be shown. Then shall the lambs feed after their manner, and the waste places of the fat ones shall strangers eat. So those of us who drew ourselves up and became spiritually fat and lazy are going to be destroyed unless we repent because the lambs are going to feed the way lambs ought to feed, not to have their water trampled and their food destroyed before them. Woe to them that draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin, as it were, with a carp rope. We drag sin along with us. But say, let him make speed and hasten his work that we may see it. Oh yeah, we talk about God and say, let God speed and hasten his work, but we're dragging these sins along. We're not doing the things that would cause us to be able to be delivered from our sins. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw nigh and come that we may know it. I mean, that's, you know, we all pray, I think, all throughout the church, people pray, thy kingdom come. We want the blessings that come as a result of obedience to God, but at the same time, we're not willing to change our lives. How much do we need to preach this? How much does it need to be said? How often do we need to go over it? Until we quit just sitting and listening and saying, that sounds good, that ought to be done, and start doing something about it. That's the key. I sat through sermon after sermon after sermon for many, many, many years in Worldwide, about 50 now. Well, not all in Worldwide, but 50 since I first started listening. And I sat through a lot of sermons saying, boy, that's right. 
we ought to do that or they ought to do that. But what about me? Did I really change my life? Did I really examine it and say, what, how big is the cart of sins I'm dragging behind me? Now, it all sounded good, and we all wanted God. And we all wanted God's blessings and to be a part of his kingdom. But we were not willing to do those things that were necessary to get there. And look at what God has done to us, brethren. Look at where we sit today. Look at the confusion. Woe to them that call evil good and good evil, verse 20. We can look at ourselves and we can say, hey, we're okay. But are we calling evil good? We allowed an awful lot of sin. And we need to be examining every aspect of our lives very, very seriously and actually making some change. Not just philosophy. Not just words. Not just good thoughts about the good that we ought to be. But actually owning up to, facing what we are, and beginning to truly repent and change from that. That's what God is looking for. That put darkness for light and light for darkness. Yeah, we were very, very material-minded. We were involved in this world around us, just as Israel was when they were captive in the captivity of Babylon. That wasn't such a bad captivity in many respects. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and others were very, very high in the Babylonian government. They were allowed to build houses and and have businesses and farms and all of those things in the Babylonian captivity in Babylon. Is that so different than what we have been in this past 69, 70 years since the church was formed in 1933? We are in the captivity of the Babylonian system. And through all that we've been through in the church in all those years, we have been influenced by the world around us. We have come to live a lot like the world. It's been said over and over that we're only about six months behind the world. What you know, We're just a little bit slower to sin than they are. But uh, the world is sliding into worse sin, and the church was sort of sliding along about six months behind it and thinking we were righteous. Pretty much the way they were in Babylon. And then they didn't want to get out of it when God offered chance to go back to Jerusalem. Most of them stayed right there in their houses, their businesses, the lives that they had built because they enjoyed Babylon. They enjoyed the material things of Babylon. Is that really any different than the position the church has been in these last 70 years? Isn't it interesting that the early New Testament church, begun by Christ there in 30 or 31 A.D., take your pick of which date, was basically over and done with by 100 A.D.? John, the last living apostle, was writing in 96 to 98 A.D., somewhere right in there. That church went through the cycle of conversion and repentance, of learning, of growth, into one of apathy and Laodiceanism and a falling away, and basically had disintegrated by the time that Paul, uh, that John wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in the book of Revelation. It was basically all over for that era. And here we've lasted about 70 years and gone through essentially the same cycle. When are we going to learn? Here is our chance now, right toward the end of this cycle, to realize what has happened. What has happened to the church, what has happened to us, 
and to begin to turn it around and make it right again. I think I'll stop and turn this tape over. Well, I, I guess I guess looking at it, I do have enough time here to go on a little bit further. But um, I guess with the long announcements also, I got into this a little later than normal, so I'm looking at the watch saying I better start wrapping this up, but I do have uh, some time left here, actually quite a bit. Anyway, verse 21 reflects Revelation 3 and its description of the Laodicean church. Woe to them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. What about God's sight? What about how He looks upon us? We tend to have a certain spiritual pride and think, well, I may not be what I ought to be, but I, I must be okay. At least I'm better than all these people around me. And we, as an organization and as individuals, simply cannot afford the luxury of that attitude, brethren. That is the Laodicean attitude, where we become prideful and wise in our own eyes, thinking that we're okay. And don't forever, for a minute, for a second, begin to raise your attitude and spiritual pride in this little group that we are a part of. Do not put me on any kind of a pedestal. Look to God the Father in Jesus Christ. And we'll see that as we get on a little further into this and how that happened and what God did as a result of that. We should have our focus on God in heaven, not on men or groups. That will not cut it. Surely we've learned by now that that won't do it. After going through Armstrong and Tkach and the attitudes that we had there, Maybe I better get off that tack because we'll get to it a little later on. So let's uh, let's leave that and go to Jeremiah two. Jeremiah two. Again, we've talked about many of these scriptures before, and and uh, we'll talk about them again. I don't want it to be a downer in that sense, except that we need to take these things seriously, and for me to go over them three, four, five, six years ago uh, is not enough. They need to be repeated. I need to reread them over and over again. And each time I read these scriptures back here, I need to analyze my own life and what progress I may or may not have been making since the last time I read these scriptures. The Word of God never grows old. Maybe we can say, well, that's not new. You've said this before. But brethren, we're still a long ways from where we need to be. So I will continue to preach repentance from dead works and from wrong attitudes and spiritual pride. And let's take long, hard, serious looks at our own lives and what there may be in them that is still unclean before God in any way. Let's see here. Where do I want to pick this up in, in, in Jeremiah? I think verse 8 is a good place of uh, Jeremiah 2, verse 8. The priest said not, Where is the Lord? And they that handle the law knew me not. The pastors also transgressed against me. We weren't really looking for the eternal ones in our lives as much as we were looking to the ministry, uh, as we were looking to the organization as a church. We weren't saying, Where is the eternal in all this? But what is our focus and what is our work and what is it that we are doing? So, the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. 
Wherefore, I will yet plead with you, says the Eternal, and with your children's children will I plead. For pass over the coasts of Chittim and see and send unto Kadar and consider diligently and see if there be such a thing. As a nation, change their gods. Has, has this happened? He says. Look around here, there, and everywhere. Has a nation changed their gods, which are yet no, no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. God is the only one who can truly bless. He's the only one who can give eternal life. And yet we began to look at things in this world, materiality, houses, cars, businesses, whatever. And that, those things became our God. Those things that the Gentiles seek, that Christ told us there in the Sermon on the Mount not to do. Seek you first the kingdom of God. Verse 12, Be astonished, O you heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be you very desolate, says the Eternal. This is something that God takes very, very seriously, and he tells us we had better fear because of what we were and had become and too often really still are. For my people have committed two evils, verse 13. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, where they could really be nourished, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. We've looked to this world and the things of this world for satisfaction, for sustenance. And those are broken cisterns that are going to run dry. And they don't really produce happiness and satisfaction anyway, no matter how much we might have. And there are many, many stories we could recount of wealthy people who just simply cannot get enough. And it seems the more they have, the more they feel they have to have. There's, certain, there's a certain insecurity there. You would think they would be very secure in what they have, but they're insecure because, you know why? One of the principal reasons is they're not finding any satisfaction in it. So they think, boy, if I just had more, even more, then I'd be happy, then I'd be satisfied. So they get more and even more, and they're still not. And this has to build a great insecurity in their beings. Because no matter what they have, they're still not satisfied. He repeats that in Haggai 1, about how we get our pockets full, but there are pockets with holes in them. Broken cisterns, the same thing. So here we are. Now let's go to Jeremiah 8. Jeremiah 8. Verse 13. Well, maybe I should pack up a little bit. Uh, let's go back to verse 9. be a good place to pick it up, I think. Well, no, verse 8. How do you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? How can you say that? How can we say we're rich and increased with goods and we have everything we need? We have God's truth, we might say. But our attitudes are not with God wholeheartedly. That is what bothers him. Lo, certainly in vain made he it. The pens of the scribes is in vain. All these things we might write about the church and about how it's doing such a wonderful work, it's all in vain. The wise men are ashamed. Look what has happened to the church. They are dismayed and taken. Lo, they've rejected the word of the eternal and what wisdom is in them. Therefore will I give their wives to others and their fields to them that shall inherit them, for everyone from the least even to the greatest is given to covetousness. From the prophet even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. 
the true mark of a man is what he will do or how he will treat people who can do nothing for him. But the ministry didn't treat the people that way. The ministry was overbearing. And we've all heard these stories, and we don't need to go into the individual accounts of that because we all have our war stories. Everyone I meet has been mistreated and misused in some way or another. So we understand that this is talking about the church. False dealing, not with the best interests of the people in mind at all, but the hireling mentality of money and power and fame and fortune and whatever else goes with it. For they have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, very slightly healed it, saying, peace, peace, when there really is no peace. You'll sit in one group, one church, one organization, and they'll say, peace, peace, our group is fine, don't worry about it, we're just hunky-dory here, it's all those Laodiceans out there that are the problem. And I've said that so many times, I can hear it rattle in my head, but it is an overall attitude of nearly every organization that has spun off from worldwide. We're okay, it's the other guys that are the problem. Brethren, that just cannot be. We are part of the problem. They also are part of the problem. But don't blame it on somebody else. And I will not say peace, peace, when there is no peace, because there basically is no peace in the church. Fighting among ourselves, ministers warring among themselves, it is not really that peaceful yet. God is going to bring peace to his latter temple, as we've seen in Haggai 2, verse 9. But so far, we don't have it. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed, neither could they blush. Therefore shall they fall among them that fall. In the time of their visitation they shall be cast down, says the Eternal. No, hardly anyone is ashamed in the church today. Do you realize that? Do you grasp that? Hardly anyone is ashamed, because it's all somebody else's fault. It's those lay of the sands, or it was those false preachers. Not my fault. Why should I be ashamed? Well, I'm ashamed, brethren of what I was and what I still am. And I hope you are too, and I hope that we are working diligently to change all that and to be what we really should be. I will stop and turn this over. Now let's go to verse 13. I will surely consume them, says the Eternal. There shall be no grapes on the vine. So here we get back to God's vineyard and discussing it in terms of that analogy. There shall be no grapes on the vine nor figs on the fig tree, and the leaf shall fade, and the things that I have given them shall pass away from them. Doesn't that remind you of Isaiah 5, where he says, I'll knock down the fences and the hedges, and I'll allow it to be trampled and destroyed. So God says there will be no grapes on the vine. The church is headed into utter destruction. And, well, if you look at it, it's already in a shambles for the most part, but there's still quite a few organizations around, many, many, many of them, hundreds of them, but it's going to come to the point that there are no grapes on the vine or figs on the fig tree. Verse 14. Why do we sit still? Assemble yourselves and let us enter into the defense cities, uh, that is, those under God's protection, the true congregation, wherever we might find the truth. And let us be silent there. What is our defense? The whole armor of God. The helmet of salvation. The plate of righteousness. Those are the defense cities that we need to go into. Uh, 
personal defense that's talking about there in Ephesians where he mentions those things. But the same is true of the cities or congregations of God. We need to go where we will find God's protection because of obedience and service to him and doing everything we possibly can to please him, which means don't do anything that the world does, essentially. Whatever the world is doing is going to be of Satan the devil. He has deceived the whole world. And virtually everything in the society around us is wrong in one way or another. There is so little out there that is good, but we tend to imbibe of it. And we did in worldwide, and we have since worldwide, imbibe too much of this world around us. For the eternal our God has put us to silence and given us water of gall to drink, because we have sinned against the eternal. We looked for peace, but no good came, and for a time of health, and behold, trouble. We'd love to see. God bless us. Notice it down in verse 19. Behold the voice of the cry of the daughter of my people, because of them that dwell in a far country. Is not the Lord in Zion? Is not her king in her? Is not God our king? Why have they provoked me to anger with their graven images and with strange vanities? The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. Here we are. For the hurt of the daughter of my people am I hurt. I am black. That means with famine. Astonishment has taken hold on me. And aren't that, isn't that where we are today? Famine, pestilence, spiritually speaking. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is not the health of the daughter of my people recovered? And then he just says, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, and I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. We look at the devastation in the church, and so many of our friends and relatives and loved ones and acquaintances have just left. They're gone. Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place of wayfaring men, that I might leave my people and go from them. For they be all adulterers in an assembly of treacherous men, spiritual adultery, involved in this world, enjoying it, living with it, enjoying its entertainment, being a part and parcel with it. Wouldn't it be nice to be away from all that? They bend their tongues like they're bold for lies, but they are not valiant for the truth. How many are really, really seeking God, truly examining their Bibles? You can tell what people are doing by the things they talk about. And you go to most organizations in the church today, and you will find that they'll talk about a lot of things, but they rarely talk about God and the Bible. They talk about their lives, secular things, jobs, whatever. Not that it's wrong to ever mention any of those things as we fellowship because those things have an effect on our life. But where is the main focus? Is it on God and the things of God, or is it just sort of on life and things in general? We need to change that. Let's go to Ezekiel 15. Ezekiel 15. And the word of the Eternal came to me, saying, Son of man, what is the vine tree more than any tree, or than a branch which is among the trees of the forest? What, what is the grapevine above a pine or a fir or a cedar or an aspen or whatever? Willow tree. Why would you look at a vine, a grapevine? Shall wood be taken thereof to do any work? I mean, 
You've seen grapevines. Can you build a house with the wood you get from a grapevine? Or will men take a pen of it to hang any vessel thereon? You know, would you would you get a big uh, stob from a grapevine and stick it in the wall to hang something heavy on? Or would you get a piece of oak? Behold, it is cast into the fire for fuel. When you get done with uh, pruning grapevines, you just simply burn them up. The fire devours both the ends of it, and the midst of it is burned. Is it meat for any work? What good's a grapevine, in other words? God uses the analogy of the church being a grapevine over and over. Christ is a vine, we are the branches. He's central to the, to the uh, vineyard. And we're the branches that come off of him. Behold, when it was whole, it was meat for no work. And I think that might have been said about us years ago. How much less shall it be meat yet for any work when the fire has devoured it and it is burned? We didn't do very much even in worldwide, I think he's saying to us. Yeah, many were called, and that was a good thing to be done. But the personal works and fruits were not there in the way that they should have been, and therefore the entire body was weak and produced wild grapes. We did not produce what God wanted us to be. So it wasn't great at its best. And how much less now that it has been basically devoured and burned. Therefore, thus says the eternal God, is the vine tree among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so will I give the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Just like he says, I would throw the prunings from a grapevine, and in this case the whole vine, into the fire, so will I do to the inhabitants of the church. Jerusalem being a code word for the church. So he's basically throwing the whole vine away. Only a remnant will remain, as we've seen from many, many scriptures. And I will set my face against them. They shall go out from one fire, and another fire shall devour them. You go from group to group, organization to organization, and it seems like you get burned up wherever you go. You keep putting your hand on the stove, and you keep getting burned, to use another analogy. And I will make the land desolate, because they have committed trespass, says the eternal God. So is God happy with the way things have been? No. Let's go to, from there to Isaiah 32. Isaiah 32. This will eventually get better as we go on through this, but uh, there are an awful lot of these scriptures, and I'm not by any means going to cover all of them. So we'll, we'll get a few more here. Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness, and princes shall rule in judgment. This is going to happen eventually. And a man shall be as an hiding place from the wind, and a covert from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as a shadow of a great rock in a weary land. Let's go to Isaiah 4 just for a moment and tie that in with this statement that he just made. Isaiah 4, verse 1, In that day seven women shall take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own bread, wear our own apparel, only let us be called by your name to take away our reproach. And that day shall the branch of the eternal be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. The remnant that escapes what is happening to the church that is drawn together as a remnant people. Verse 3, And it shall come to pass that he that is left in Zion, those that are left in the church, and he that remains in Jerusalem, most are going to be destroyed by famine, spiritual, spiritual famine, the sword, the pestilence, 
as in Ezekiel 5, shall be called holy. Those that remain will be called holy. If we grow and overcome and change, we will be holy. If we do not become holy in our character, we won't remain. We'll be taken away. Even everyone that is written among the living in Jerusalem, those that are still alive, spiritual death, famine, pestilence, disease is occurring in the church. And here, God says, some will still remain alive. When the Eternal shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion. See, it's, it's all the different organizations God is going to purge and wash, and some will survive. It shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst by the spirit of judgment, and by the spirit of burning. So, God will cause someone to rise up that we can look to. And peoples who who survived from all the seven churches and all the organizations will look there. Verse 3, And the eyes of them that see shall not be dim, and the ears of them that hear shall hearken. The heart also of the rash shall understand knowledge, and the tongue of the stammerer shall be ready to speak plainly. The vile person shall be no more called liberal, nor the churl said to be bountiful. So those that are not obeying God and are not serving God in the way that He wishes to be served are no longer going to be given any obeisance or not going to be given any respect or authority. For the vile person will speak villainy and his heart will work iniquity to practice hypocrisy and to utter error against the eternal, to make empty the soul of the hungry and it will cause the drink of the thirsty to fail. And one of the ways is what we already read, saying, Peace, peace when there really is no peace. The instruments also of the churl are evil. He devises wicked devices to destroy the poor with lying words, even when the needy speaks right. We cry out to God, and the needy speaks and wants help, but he's not being given the help he needs. Brethren, the help we need is someone to cry aloud and spare not and tell us our sins. Tell us why these things are happening to us and what we need to do about it. That's what would really help us. But telling us everything's nice and easy, and it's those other people that are the problem, is not what we need to hear. It's what we like to hear. But it's not what God wants us to hear. Verse 8, But the liberal devises liberal things, and by liberal things shall he stand. Rise up, you women that are at ease. All you organizations that are sitting back at ease, sitting in whatever congregation you're in, being told you're Philadelphian. It's the other guy that's the problem. Hear my voice, you careless daughters. Give ear to my speech. Many days and years shall you be troubled. Or my margin says days above a year. I don't know exactly what the timing means here, but there may be some serious trouble that comes that is over a year long anyway. You careless women... For the vintage shall fail, the gathering shall not come. We got a vine, we got vines, but he says the vintage will fail. What do vintners say at times? Well, we had a bad year this year, the grapes weren't good. And that's what's happening in the church. The vintage shall fail, the gathering shall not come. It's not even worth harvesting. And that's what God says of the church overall, and of you and me not of somebody else, but us. So he says, Tremble, you women, or churches, that are at ease. Be troubled, you careless ones, 
strip you, make you bare. See the spiritual implications there? We need to strip away the facade, the hypocrisy, the materiality, the things we look to, the covetousness for this, that, and the other thing out there in the world. We need to strip all that off and bear ourselves. We think we're clothed, see, Revelation 3 about the Laodicean church, and we don't know that we're naked and blind. So he says, strip yourselves, bear yourselves, take a good hard look at yourself in the mirror without all the trappings, that is the clothing on, that hides what we really are. Gird sackcloth upon your loins. Sackcloth symbolized mourning and trouble, difficulties. They shall lament for the teach, for the pleasant vines, or pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine. Wouldn't we love to see the vineyard of God producing wonderful, ripe, tame, domestic grapes, good grapes? But we lament because that's not happening. Upon the land of my people shall come up thorns and briars, yea, upon all the houses of joy in the joyous city. We have lots of organizations today, and each would like to think that it's a house of joy. And yet the troubles continue. And we have our own troubles, don't we? We have our own carnalities. We have our own difficulties getting on with one another. We have difficulty looking at the beam in our eye and seeing the moat in other people's eyes. We have all kinds of human problems. We have all kinds of relationship problems between ourselves and God and ourselves and our brethren. We need to create houses of joy, houses of peace, by examining ourselves, stripping ourselves naked and bare, and realizing that we are the problem, not someone else. Because the palaces or fortresses shall be forsaken, the multitude of the city shall be left, the forts and towers shall be for dens forever, O joy of wild asses, a pasture of flocks. These troubles are going to continue, he says, until, verse 14, until the Spirit be poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness be a fruitful field, and the fruitful field be counted for a forest. Then judgment shall dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness remain in the fruitful field. And the work of righteousness shall be peace, and the effect of righteousness, quietness, and assurance forever. And my people shall dwell in a peaceful habitation, and in sure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. Now, isn't that what it says in Haggai 2, verse 9? In this place will I bring peace. That's the house I want to be in. The house that is going to be built from the remnant of all the churches. And that's the one you want to be in. Okay, let's go to Psalm 80 now. Psalm 80. How am I doing on time and getting close here to where we need to begin to wrap this up? And I want to consider certainly this one. Uh, well, let's let's start at the beginning of it because it's it's a very important psalm and it's very very prophetic. The, the the psalms are absolutely chock full of prophecy. Believe me. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you that lead Joseph like a flock, you that dwell between the cherubim, shine forth. Speaking of course of Christ here, before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your strength and come and save us. This is our cry. This is our plea. This is our position right now in the church of God. 
Turn us again, O God, and cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. So we're looking for salvation from God and all our troubles. O eternal God of hosts, how long will you be angry against the prayer of your people? When will you turn your face back to us? You feed them with the bread of tears and give them tears to drink in great measure. And I I think we've all experienced that in the last 15, 20 years. Doesn't this make sense to the church today? Isn't this prophetic? Isn't this exactly what we're living day in and day out right now? You make us a strife to our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. You and I felt a little of that lately. Turn us again, O God of hosts, and cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. He repeats what he said in verse 3. You have brought a vine out of Egypt. You have cast out the heathen and planted it. So right here in the midst of Egypt, mostly in America and other places around the world where God has, has planted his vine, he's brought a vine out of Egypt. He brought ancient Israel out as a vine of his, um, of his field. And he's brought us out of Egypt and Babylon and, and all those things that symbolize sin in the Bible. So he's brought us out. You have cast out the heathen and planted it. Mr. Armstrong rejected false doctrine and paganism and Protestantism and planted true doctrine, basically, in the church. You prepared room before it and did, take, and did cause it to take deep root, and it filled the land. And we did take a pretty deep root. And didn't we fill America and Canada and uh, a lot of people in all the other areas of Israel? You prepared room before it and did cause it to take deep root, and it filled the land. The hills were covered with the shadow of it, and the boughs thereof were like the goodly cedars. Remember that cedars analogy, because we're going to get to it uh, a little later on. And it turns out to be very, very important. He includes cedars and vineyard together. So, yes, you could hear the World of Moral broadcast time after time as you drove across the country at night. I used to I'd listen to one broadcast, flip across the dial, find it again. Listen to that, flip across the dial, find it again. It covered this country like a blanket. She sent out her boughs into the sea and her branches into the rivers. So it not only was in the land where it had been planted, but it went out across the seas and around the world. Why have you then broken down her hedges, so that all they which pass by the way do pluck her? Why have you broken it down? He says in Isaiah 5. This ties in very, very closely with Isaiah 5, and how he's broken down the fence, the hedge around it, and now it's being destroyed. The boar out of the wood does waste it, and the wild beast of the field does devour it. So the pagans, the heathens, are devouring the church. People are going right back into the, the vomit of the Protestantism and Catholicism of this world and the occult. Return, we beseech you, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and behold and visit this vine. Please pay attention to us, we say. Please help us. And the vineyard which your right hand has planted in the branch that you made strong for yourself. Got to be the church. Can't be anything else. It is burned with fire. It is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the Son of Man, whom you made strong for yourself. So will not we go back from you. Quicken us, and we will call upon your name. Doesn't he tell us over and over to 
turn to Him, and He will turn His face back to us once we wholeheartedly turn to Him with all our being. Obviously, we haven't done that because He hasn't turned back and begun to bless us yet. Now, we can kid ourselves in whatever organization we might be in that God is just blessing our work, whatever we're doing. Oh, come on. Where do you see anywhere on this earth, in any of the congregations of God, that God is just blessing everything that's being done and there's incredible growth and, and the gifts of God's Spirit and so on and so forth? No, it's not anywhere. And most of all that work and diligent effort that is going into a work of some kind is producing very, very, very pitifully little. So will we not go back from you? Quicken us and we will call upon your name. Then he says for the third time in this chapter, Turn us again, O eternal God of hosts. Cause your face to shine and we shall be saved. So that is our plea. That is our hope. That is our desire that God will do this for us and to us. Let's go to Matthew 21 now. Matthew 21. And here I want to pick it up in verse 33. Matthew 21, 33. Here another parable. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a winepress in it. Sounds just like Isaiah 5 again. Built a tower, all the elements of Isaiah 5 that God has said. So Christ is basically quoting from Isaiah 5 here. And he makes a parable out of it. And he led it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. Could it be any question here that he's talking about his church that he's going to build? I mean, he came here to build his church, in part, to set an example for all mankind and to live and die as a perfect sacrifice. Yes, I mean, there are a lot of ramifications of what he did and different elements to it, but he came here to plant a vineyard, and he spent his ministry training a ministry to run that vineyard. So, the example from the Old Testament here in Isaiah 5 is being used by Jesus Christ to describe the New Testament church. So, another proof that those scriptures back there are talking about today, because they're prophetic scriptures for the end time, and here we find it in the New as well. So, he led it out to husbandmen and went into a far country, and when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. Just like he looked for good grapes there in Isaiah 5, and it produced wild grapes. The husbandman took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did to them likewise. But last of all, he sent to them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. And I think the analogy here is inescapably that of Jesus Christ. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. When the Lord thereof of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those husbandmen? They say to him, he will miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. Now think about that a little bit. Who killed Jesus Christ? I did. You did. 
It wasn't just those physical Jews who took them before Pontius Pilate. Yes, they physically, literally did it, but we do it every time we sin. And he gave us a fine vineyard, and he wanted us to produce the fruits of righteousness, to reverence his Son whom he sent. And we have set upon him, we have cast shame upon his name by our sins, all the sins of the whole world, including yours and mine. We are the ones who stoned his son. We're the ones who stoned the prophets, those that he sent. We're the ones who stoned the ministry still today, especially if they speak up about the things that are wrong with us, with you and me, if they cry aloud and spare not because people don't want to hear that. They want to hear that they are fine, that everything's good. They don't want to hear a strong message of repentance at all. Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the Scriptures, verse 42, the stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. This is the Eternal's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes, is it not? Therefore say unto you, The kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. So he's talking to these publicans and, uh, and uh, Pharisees here. And he says, It's going to be taken away from you and given to a people that brings forth fruits. You and I have been given that opportunity. He gave it, took it away from those Jews of that day, and gave it to the New Testament church. And we are a part of that New Testament church. So he's given it to a people that are supposed to bring forth good grapes. Godly grapes, the kind that God was well pleased in, not wild grapes, sour grapes. We had what we used to call muscadines there in East Texas when we were clearing out the woods. And they had a real thick skin on them. They were kind of bitter, and they made, your, they made you shake all over before you bit into them sometimes because they just tasted wild. They weren't like, uh, you know, the, the sweet, seedless Grapes you can pop in your mouth and they taste good. Uh, we ate some of those, but it wasn't nearly as pleasant as some of those you might buy in the store. They were wild grapes and not all that great to eat. God is looking for those that are pleasing to him. Whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. And when the chief priests and Pharisees had heard his parables, they perceived that he spoke of them. So he took it away from them, said he was going to, and he gave it to the church. That's why the church is involved in the calendar, as per Colossians 2, 16 and 17. That's why the church is involved in everything that God wants done today. He took it away from physical Israel and gave it to spiritual Israel. Put it in our hands, and we are here to produce fruits. Well, that might be a good place to break this because I want to go into another section here, which is a major section. So we'll just stop there for today and pick it up. This is a good lesson to stop with because it emphasizes that we despise Jesus Christ, not only in our past life, but we still are. By any sins that we commit, by any unholiness, any ungodliness that is in us in any form, Keep shame upon Jesus Christ. And it's just as if we were those evil persons that were destroying those that God sent.
We have to listen to the prophets, not despise them, not stone them. And we have to listen to his son, whom he sent, who said in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, that we have to raise our standards far higher than they have ever been. And we've had several sermons along those lines about the standards of God that we have to live up to. And so often, we accept the standard of this world, and maybe we rise just a little bit above it, but we don't rise to the standard of this word and live by every word of God. So let's leave it then at that for today, and we'll pick it up here next time.